Chapter Eight of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Eight: The Cruise of the Dragon. The night passed without alarm. The gale continued to blow with fury, and, until it abated, Edmund had little fear that the Danes would venture upon an attack. They had indeed no reason for haste. The Saxon vessel was in their waters, and could not return so long as the storm continued to blow from the east. The next day parties of Danes were seen making their way across the swampy country from the direction of Yarmouth. As soon, however, as these approached near enough to see the Saxons in readiness on the walls of the castle, they retired at once, knowing that the place could be captured by nothing short of a prolonged and desperate siege. On the fourth day the storm abated, and the Saxons prepared to make their way seaward again. The wind still blew, but lightly, from the same quarter, and the sails would therefore be of no use. With their great oar-power they were confident that once through the Danish flotilla they could defy pursuit. Accordingly they again embarked, and, loosing the moorings, rowed down toward Yarmouth. They had chosen a time when the tide was running in, for although this would hinder their progress it would equally impede their pursuers, while it would enable them to check their vessel in time did they find any unforeseen obstacle in their way. They entered the river and rode along quietly until they neared the walls of the town. Here the river was at its narrowest, and they saw the Danish galleys gathered thickly on the stream. Edmund and Egbert were on the forecastle, and presently gave the signal for the men to cease rowing. "'It's just as I expected,' Egbert said. "'They have formed a boom across the river of trunks of trees and beams lashed together. "'We cannot make our way down until that obstacle is removed. "'What say you, Edmund?' "'Well, I agree with you,' Edmund replied. "'We had best keep along close to the right bank, "'until within a short distance of the boom. "'Then we must land the greater part of our men. "'These must march along the bank in their phalanx. "'The others must keep the boat moving close alongside.' and from the forecastle they'll be able to fire down upon the Danes and aid those on shore to drive them back and make their way to the end of the boom. They have but to cut the lashings there, and the hole will swing round. But now we must see the nature of the obstacle and what is to be done. It were best to wait until the tide turns. In the first place fewer men will be needed on board the ship, as she will advance by herself abreast of the men on shore. In the second place, when the lashing is cut, the boom will then swing down the stream, will cause confusion among the boats behind it, and will open a clear space for us to make our way down. Edmund agreed. A light anchor was dropped, and the dragon rode quietly in the stream. Great animation was evident among the Danes. Large numbers crossed the river, and a strong force gathered at either end of the boom, and in boats close behind it, to prevent the Saxons from attempting to cut the lashings. There was little uneasiness on board the dragon. The Saxons were confident now of the power of their close formation to force its way through any number of the enemy, and they would gain such assistance from the fire from the lofty forecastle that they doubted not that they should be able to drive back the Danes and destroy the boom. In an hour the tide no longer rose. They waited till it ran down with full force, then the anchor was hauled up and the dragon rode to the bank. Sixty of the fighting men headed by Egbert leaped on shore. Edmund, with the remainder, took his place on the forecastle. The oars next to the bank were drawn in, and some of those on the outward side manned by the sailors. Then, in its usual order, the phalanx moved slowly forward, 
while the ship floated along beside them close to the bank. The Danes, with loud shouts, advanced to meet them, and the arrows soon began to fly thickly. Covered by the long shields of the front rank, the Saxons moved forward steadily, while as the Danes approached, the archers on the forecastle opened a destructive fire upon them. The confidence of the Saxons was justified, for the combat was never in doubt. Although the Northmen fought bravely, they were unable to withstand the steady advance of the wedge of spears, and very many fell beneath the rain of arrows from above. Steadily the wedge made its way until it reached the end of the boom. A few blows with their axes sufficed to cut the cables which fastened it in its place. As soon as this was done, Edmund gave a shout, and the Saxons at once sprang on board the ship, which before the Danes could follow them was steered out into the stream. As Egbert had foreseen, the boom, as it swung around, swept before it a number of the Danish boats and imprisoned them between it and the shore. The oars were soon run out, and while the men on the forecastle continued their fire at the Danish boats, the others, seizing the oars, swept the dragon along the stream. The Danes strove desperately to arrest her progress. Some tried to run alongside and board, others dashed in among the oars and impeded the work of the rowers, while from the walls of the town showers of missiles were poured down upon her. But the tide was gaining every moment in strength, and, partly drifting, partly rowing, the dragon, like a bull attacked by a pack of dogs, made her way down the river. Every effort of the Danes to board was defeated, and many of their boats sunk, and at last she made her way into the open sea. There her sails were hoisted, and she soon left her pursuers behind. Once at sea her course was again turned north, and, picking up some prizes on the way, she took up her station off the mouth of the Humber. Several ships were captured as they sailed out from the river. After the spoil on board was taken out, these, instead of being burnt, as had always been the case before, were allowed to proceed on their way, since had they been destroyed the crews must either have been slain or landed. The first course was repugnant to Edmund, the second could not be adopted, because they would have carried the news to the Danes, and that the dragon was off the river, and no more ships would have put to sea. And indeed so large was the number of Danish vessels always up the Humber, that a fleet could easily have been equipped and sent out, before which the dragon must have taken flight. One day a large sailing-ship was seen coming out. The dragon remained with lowered sail until she had passed, then started in pursuit and speedily came up with the Danish vessel. Edmund summoned her to surrender, and was answered by a Norseman of great stature and noble appearance, who from the poop hurled a javelin, which would have pierced Edmund had he not leaped quickly aside. A few other darts were thrown, and then the dragon ran alongside the enemy and boarded her. The opposition of the Northmen was speedily beaten down, but their leader desperately defended the ladder leading to the poop. He was struck by two arrows and fell on one knee, and Edmund was about to climb the ladder when the door of the cabin in the poop opened, and a Norse maiden some sixteen years old sprang out. Seeing her father wounded at the top of the ladder and the Saxons preparing to ascend it, while others turned their bows against the wounded Northman, she sprang forward and, throwing herself upon her knees before Edmund, besought him to spare her father's life. Edmund raised his hand and the bows were lowered. "'I have no wish to slay your father, maiden,' she, he said gently. We slay only those who resist, and resistance on the part of a single man, and he wounded, against a whole ship's crew, is madness. We are no sea-wolves who slay for the pleasure of slaying, but are Saxons who fight for our country against the oppressions and rapine of your people. Little right have they to mercy, seeing they show none, but our religion enjoins us to have pity even upon our enemies. 
You had best ascend to your father and see to his wounds. None will harm you or him. The girl, with an exclamation of thanks, sprang up the ladder. Edmund superintended the searching of the ship. She contained a great store of valuables, which were speedily transferred to the dragon. When this had been done, Edmund ascended to the poop. The jarl was sitting in a great chair placed there. Edmund had already learnt from the crew that he was Jarl Siegbert, a noted leader of the Northmen. His daughter had drawn out the arrows and bandaged the wounds. "'Jarl Siegbert,' Edmund said as he approached him, "'you have been a bitter enemy of the Saxons, and small mercy have you shown to those who have fallen into your hands. But learn now that we, Christian Saxons, take no vengeance on a defenceless foe. You are free to pursue your voyage with your daughter and your ship to Norway.' Your stores we have made free with, seeing that they are all plunder taken from the Saxons, and we do but reclaim our own. "'And who are you, young sir?' the Earl asked. "'I am one of King Alfred's Eldormen of Wessex, Edmund by name.' "'I have heard of you,' the Dane said, as one who has taught the Saxons new tactics, fighting in a close body which has more than once pierced our lines and caused our overthrow. But you are a mere lad.' "'I am young,' Edmund replied and had it not been for the invasions and oppressions of your countrymen, might have still accounted myself as scarce a man. But you have made warriors of every West Saxon capable of bearing a sword. Remember, Jarl, that your life has been in Saxon hands, and that they have spared it. So come not hither to our shores again. I propose not doing so, the Northman replied. I have seen enough of stricken fields, and was returning to my own country to hang up my sword content with the fame I have gained, until Woden called me to join his warriors and feast in his halls. Since we may not meet there, young Saxon, for they say that you Christians look to a place where arms will be laid aside and the sound of feasting be unheard, I will say farewell. For myself I thank you not for my life, for I would rather have died as I have lived with my sword in my hand, but for my daughter's sake I thank you, for she is but young to be left unprotected in the world." A few minutes later the Danish vessel continued on her way, and the dragon again took her station on the lookout. She was now deep in the water, and after picking up one or two more small prizes, Edmund and Egbert determined to return home. It was probable that the Danes would soon take the alarm and dispatch a fleet to attack them. Laden down as the dragon was, her speed under oars was materially affected, and it was advisable to stow away their booty before proceeding with further adventures. Her head was turned south, and she coasted down the eastern shores of England without adventure. Several Danish vessels were seen arriving at or quitting the coast, but the dragon continued her course without heeding them, and rounding the forelands sailed along the south coast and made her way up the parrot. Upon inquiry they learned that no event of any importance had taken place during their absence. The Danes were complete masters of the country. King Alfred was in hiding, none knew where. The greater portion of the Danes were at their camp at Chippenham, but parties roamed here and there through the land. Dressed as countrymen, Edmund and Egbert made their way to Exeter, and there arranged with some traders for the purchase of the less valuable portion of the dragon's cargo. This consisted of rich clothing, silks and other stuffs, wine, vestments and altar hangings from the churches, arms and armor, hides and skins. The prices obtained were far below the real value of the articles for money was scarce, and none could say when the Danes might again swoop down and clear out the contents of the warehouses. Nevertheless, the sum obtained was a large one for those days, and this did not include the value of the gold and silver goblets, salvers, vases, and utensils used in the celebration of religious services. 
Of these, spoiled from the houses of the wealthy, and the churches and monasteries, they had obtained a considerable number. These were buried in the wood near the lonely spot at which the dragon was moored. The rest of the cargo was sent in wagons, the more valuable portions hidden under the hides and skins, to Exeter. The amount which had been obtained from the cargo was divided as agreed before starting. Twenty-five shares were set apart for the king. Twenty-five shares were divided between the two leaders, and each soldier and sailor had one share. All were well satisfied with the success of the adventure, and with the damage which they had inflicted upon the Danes. A fortnight's leave was given for the men to visit their homes, and the money which they had gained in their trip was of great use to their friends in enabling them to repair the damages effected by the Danes. Not a man was absent at the appointed time, and the dragon again made her way down to the sea. It was midwinter now, and they cruised along the southern coast of England without perceiving a single hostile sail. They lay for a week off the mouth of the Thames, and then saw four large Danish vessels making their way down the river. They were all vessels of the largest size, strongly built and full of men, and the Saxons judged them to be too strong to be attacked in company. The Northmen, on seeing the golden dragon flying on the masthead of the Saxon ship, at once made towards her, keeping in a close body, but the dragon with sails and oars easily left them behind, and the Danes, giving up the pursuit, continued on their way. The dragon fell into their wake and followed at a distance, hoping that one might prove slower than the others, or that they might in the night get separated. At nightfall, however, the Danes lit cressets of tar and hemp, which enabled them not only to keep close together, but sent out a wide circle of light, so that they could perceive the dragon should she venture to approach. For two days and nights the dragon followed patiently. "'The weather is about to change,' Egbert said on the third morning. "'Methinks that there is a storm brewing, and if this be so, the Northmen may well get separated, and we may pick up one away from her fellows.' Darker and darker grew the sky, and the wind soon blew in furious gusts, raising a sea so heavy that the Saxons were obliged to lay in their oars. By nightfall it was blowing a furious gale. In the gathering darkness and the flying scud the ships of the Danes were lost sight of, but this was of little consequence now, for the attention of the Saxons was directed to their own safety. For the next three days their position was one of the greatest danger. With only a rag of sail set they ran before the gale from the southwest. Every wave as it overtook them threatened the destruction of the ship, but the dragon, light and buoyant and ably handled, rode safely over the waves. On the fourth morning the wind was still blowing fiercely, although its force had in some degree moderated. As the daylight dawned, Edmund and Egbert, who had hardly left the poop since the storm began, looked anxiously ahead. "'Surely, Edmund, I see a dark mass ahead,' Egbert exclaimed. For a minute or two Edmund gazed silently ahead. "'It is so, Egbert,' he said. "'It's a rocky coast. Do you not see a white fringe below where the waves strike against it?' As the light became clearer, the imminence of their peril grew even more distinct. A lofty, iron-bound coast rose in front of them, and extended as far as the eye could reach on either hand. The seas broke with terrible force against its base, sending its spray far up on the cliffs. "'Could we bring her about?' Edmund asked the chief of the sailors. "'It would be useless,' the man said. "'She could not make her way in the teeth of this gale.' "'That I see, but at present we are rushing on to destruction. "'If we bring her to the wind, we may run some distance along the coast before we are driven ashore, 
and may perceive some spot towards which we might direct her with a chance of making land ere she goes to pieces. The sail was still further lessened, and the ship's head brought round parallel with the coast. The dragon laboured tremendously as the sea struck her full on the beam, and every wave flooded her low waist. Each sea which struck her lifted her bodily to leeward, and for every foot she sailed forward she was driven one toward the coast. This was now but three miles distant, and another hour would ensure her destruction. For none there hoped that the anchors, even should they find bottom, could hold her for an instant in the teeth of the gale. Every eye was directed toward the shore, but no break could be seen in the wall of rock which rose almost perpendicularly from the water. "'I fear it is hopeless,' Edmund said to Egbert. "'The strongest swimmer would be dashed to pieces in an instant against those rocks.' "'He would indeed,' Egbert replied. "'I wish now that we had boldly engaged the four Danish ships. Far better would it have been for us to have died fighting for England on her decks than to have perished here.' The time passed slowly. Every minute the dragon was swept nearer and nearer toward the rocks. "'She will just make that headland,' the master sailor said, "'and that is all. Once round it we had best turn her head to the rocks. If the cliffs rise as here sheer from the water, the moment she strikes will be the last for all of us. But if the rocks are, as in some places, piled high at the foot of the cliffs, a few may possibly manage to leap from her forecastle as she strikes and to clamber up.' Scarce a word was spoken on board the dragon as she came abreast of the headland. It was but a few hundred yards away. The roar of the seas as they struck its base sounded high above the din of the storm. Great sheets of foam were thrown up to a vast height, and the turmoil of the water from the reflux of the waves was so great that the dragon was tossed upon it like a cockboat, and each man had to grasp at shroud or bulwark to retain his footings. Suddenly a cheer burst from end to end of the ship. Beyond the headland a great gap was visible, a quarter of a mile wide, as if the cliffs had been rent in sunder by some tremendous convulsion, and a fjord was seen stretching away in the bosom of the hills as far as the eye could reach. The dragon's head was turned, and soon she was flying before the wind up the inlet. A mile farther, and the fjord widened to a lake some two miles across, between steep hills clothed from foot to summit with trees. Its course was winding, and they were soon sheltered from the gale, and were gliding quietly over comparatively tranquil waters. Ten miles up the anchor was let go in a sheltered inlet, and Edmund summoned the whole crew to return thanks to God for their marvellous escape. The dragon had suffered severely in her conflict with the elements. Her large sails had been split or blown away. The bulwarks at her waist had been shattered, and considerable damage done to her gear and fittings. Four and twenty hours were allowed to the men for rest after their labours, and then all hands were set to work to refit. The next morning Edmund said to his kinsman, "'I will take two of the men and go ashore to hunt. There should be wild boar and deer in these forests, and all would be glad of some fresh meat.' "'Be careful, Edmund. Remember you are in the country of our enemies, for without doubt this land to which we have been blown is Norway.' and although we can see no signs of habitations, there may well be villages somewhere among these hills. "'I will be careful,' Edmund said, laughing, "'and if I do not return in two days, do you set sail without me. I should like to discover the abode of some northern jarl. It would indeed be a grand retaliation to give them a taste of the sufferings they have inflicted upon us.' "'Aye, that would be good work,' Edward said. "'Nevertheless I own that at present I am anxious to be at sea again.' Two days will be sufficient to refit, Edmund said, and then we will spread our wings. 
Good-bye, Egbert. I'll be back by sunset, and I hope with a deer or two. Selecting a couple of followers, both skilled with the bow and all being armed with spears, Edmund leapt ashore, for the water was deep up to the rocks, and the dragon had been moored alongside for the convenience of taking on board the wood for the repairs. Although those on board the dragon guessed it not, many eyes were watching them. A small fishing village lay at the edge of the fjord a mile or two beyond the inlet in which the ship was moored. Hidden as they were among the trees, the huts had not been noticed by the Saxons, but the strange ship had been seen by some of those in the village, and the fishermen at once pronounced that whensoever she might have come she was assuredly no Northman's ship. Messengers had immediately been sent to the villages among the hills. These were widely scattered, and it was not until the day after the ship's arrival that a force was collected which was deemed sufficient to attack it. Already, as Edmund leapt ashore, the Norsemen were making their way quietly through the forest toward the dragon. Edmund had advanced but a few hundred yards up the hillside when a large party of Norsemen sprang up upon him. Two Saxon arrows flew true to their marks, then the Danes rushed upon them. So far no words had been spoken, but Edmund placed to his lips the whistle, with which he gave orders to on board the ship and blew a long shrill note, and then shouted at the top of his voice, "'The Danes! The Danes! Push off!' The instant afterwards he was attacked. He and his men fought bravely, but in a few seconds the latter were cut down, and Edmund was levelled to the ground by a tremendous blow from a club. A minute later the din of battle rose by the water's side. Edmund's whistle and shout had been heard, and the Saxons on shore sprang on board and seized their spears and bows, just as the Danes poured down through the trees. For a time the Saxons defended the ship against the desperate attempt of the Danes to gain footing on her, but seeing the number of its assailants and being certain that Edmund was killed or captured, Egbert ordered the ropes to be cut, and the dragon was thrust away from the rocks. The oars were then got out, and she rowed out of bowshot from the shore. Then Egbert held a consultation with the leading men among the Saxons. All on board were filled with grief at the loss of their young leader, but they felt that nothing could be done for him, and it would be but courting danger to remain longer in the fjord. Since so large a force had been collected in the forest, news might have been sent to the ports, and at any moment they might see a fleet of the Northmen's galleys barring their retreat. Therefore, with bitter grief and lamentation, the dragon's sails were hoisted, and she made her way to sea. My only consolation is, Egbert said, that if the brave lad is not killed at once, he may yet find his way back to England. He is ready of wit and full of invention, that if any can possibly extricate themselves from such a strait, it is assuredly he. But I fear that he fell in the first onslaught. Brave lad, even in the moment of his own peril, he thought first of us. Had it not been for his timely warning, we should have been taken unawares, and many must have been killed, even if the dragon herself escaped capture. The storm had entirely abated, and the waters sparkled brightly in the cold January sun, as the dragon sailed out between the two headlands into the sea. Very different were the feelings of the crew to those which had animated them when two days before they had passed through the channel. Then every heart beat with joy and thankfulness, now the deepest depression and grief reigned on board. Edmund was adored by his followers, his kindness as their Eldorman, his skill and bravery as a leader, his cheerfulness and brightness under every danger and peril, had immensely endeared him to their hearts, and each man felt that he had sustained an irretrievable loss, and that with their chief the spirit which had animated the dragon and directed their enterprises was gone. 
Egbert was a valiant warrior, and was an admirable second to an enterprising leader, but he was altogether without initiative, and, except when excited by danger, was dull and silent. Although all esteemed him and honoured him for his strength and bravery, they felt that he would be but a poor substitute indeed for the leader they had lost. End of chapter 8 Recording by Mike Harris